Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget. Or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm, and let's talk about your SaaS MVP project today. Today, I have Michael Mandel of CompStack. Michael's the founder and CEO of CompStack, a SaaS that uses crowdsource model to gather real information that is hard to find, difficult to compile, or otherwise unavailable. Today, Michael will guide us through his startup journey, telling us about how he came up with the idea, how he built his MVP, found his technical co-founder, and launched CompStack through the 0 to 30,000 MR journey and beyond. How are you today, Michael? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. So tell me what CompStack does um, and specifically who your customer is and what you do for your customer. Sure. So we're a real estate data company. And uh, what we're known for is that we crowdsource commercial real estate data. So we have a network of about 30,000 commercial real estate brokers, appraisers, and research people within real estate brokerage firms who share okay. data on CompStack. In particular, the information they're sharing is, is detailed information on commercial lease transactions and commercial sales transaction, which are tra- transactions, which are called comps. Yeah. They earn credits for sharing that data, which is like a virtual currency. And okay, interesting. credits to get other data back out. And, okay. And then we end up with a comprehensive database of all of the deals that have taken place in the market. And then we sell subscription access to that data along with uh, an analytics layer that sits on top of that. And we, we sell that to primarily commercial real estate investors, lenders, and asset managers. Okay. So your primary client then is the actual investor, not the brokers. Correct. Yeah. The brokers, you know, in some capacity, they're clients, but for the most part, they're trading data and sharing data with Comstack. And most of them are using Comstack for free. Uh, The money comes from selling access to the data to the investors and lenders. Okay. So that's interesting. Okay. Because it seems like the data would actually be more valuable to the brokers. But in this case, the data that 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 you're selling is for the investors. You know, what would be an example of a data set? Sure. So what we're best known for are our lease comps, which are detailed records of commercial lease transactions. So the okay. name of the tenant, the the rent they're paying, how the rent increases over time, the concessions the landlord gave, like, you know, free rent and tenant improvement allowance. Okay. And the brokers involved in the transaction, all the details of the deal and, and primarily office deals, retail deals and industrial deals. Okay. Uh, we also do sales transactions, so detailed records of sales that have taken place, who's bought a building and sold a building, and all the you know specific details around those transactions. And then we okay. have all the related property information as well. Okay, great. 
It sounds like a perfect thing to put on, on blockchain. Is there any, and you mentioned a currency, is there any blockchain technology or ideas in the works for you guys? No, no blockchain for us. No, I mean, okay. there, is a, there is effectively a, you know, a currency, which is like a token. And, and so people have uh, at times suggested that we should do it on the blockchain, but we, we did it before people were doing, doing stuff like this on the blockchain. And, and right. Okay. Um, you know, it's been it's been working, so we're we're gonna probably stick stick with it. You don't want to tear it all down, eh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good good to know. So tell me how the currency works. That sounds pretty interesting. What so what is this like? Give me an example of how that works. Sure. So effectively, our members earn credits for sharing data. Okay. And the the credits that they earn are based off of the comprehensiveness of the data they provide us. So when they give us information on a deal, are they giving us all the specific details or just basic information? It's tied to how recent that, that deal is. Is it a deal that just took place or is it one that took place several years ago? And you know the uniqueness of the contribution. Have we received this deal from somebody else before or are they the first person to submit it? And so if it's a highly unique deal, very comprehensive and very recent, you are in the most credits. And if it's old and we've received it many times before, you don't receive very many credits. Okay. And, and, and then on the flip side, if you want to get data, if they, those same people want to get data back out, they can use their credits to get data back out. And the number of credits that a comp will cost for them to, when they get data out is tied to, again, the recency of the data, you know, and comprehensiveness of it. Okay. So it sounds to me like the people that are bringing the data to you, they're all broke. They're mostly brokers. Is that right? 50% are brokers and the other 50% are commercial real estate appraisers, appraisers and research okay. people who work within real estate brokerage firms. Okay. And where are they getting the data from? So it's like right. their person, it's like their information or? Yeah. So or... It's, it's deals that they've done themselves in the market okay. that they okay. know about. Or deals that like they know about from other people that other people have done in the market. Okay. And so they're actually, is it like a manual uploading? Then they come and they sign in and they, they bring this, they give you this data and it's, it's like they you manually upload the data. Is that essentially how it works? It's not like you're gathering the data from a analytic platforms or something like that. We're not really gathering the data per se, but the way, but the, our members can submit the data several different ways, right? So yeah, they could manually type in a, one comp into our platform and, and load it that way. They can upload a file. They like can a even, CSV file or something. Yeah, or really any fi format they want actually. Okay. Um, and they can also email the data to us in whatever format they want and okay. uh, we'll, we'll take it via email. So we make it very, very easy for people to submit data. And that's kind of part of our secret sauce is that, you know, we've gotten data in you know, where people have sent us a picture of a post-it note, people have put deals in the body of an email, people send us Excel spreadsheets, you know, PDFs, scanned PDFs, uh -huh. you know, really dirty, unstructured data. Yeah, yeah, and, okay. And, you know, a big part of our value is that we take this data in whatever format people give it to us, and we make sense of it and get it into Comstack. So and it sounds like there's some AI then? There's some are there's some machine learning in there for like at least for the image processing. Yeah, there's a decent amount of that. I mean, we use like you know kind of methodologies that you'd be that lots of people are familiar with like you know OCR and natural language processing. You know, but we also use deep learning and detect logos that are in files and use that as an impetus to understand okay. you know who might have submitted it or or re related information about the file. And then we also have built kind of like our own in-house, effectively like a mechanical Turk platform for parsing the data and leveraging a team of people to clean it up and normalize it. 
you know, we used to use, you know, people from uh, like Upwork and, and have them mm -hmm. contribute data and things like that. Now we have our, you know, actually a team of people. We've, we've opened an office in Belgrade, Serbia, and we have a team of people who are loading data there and manually entering it. But a lot of the, you know, the value in what we've created and is in making this process efficient in that we have built a lot of backend software to make that process of loading the data very, very efficient. And, and also dealing with the fact that we get lots of duplicates and figuring out what is oh, a duplicate yeah, bet, not. Yeah. And then, you know, a full audit trail of every single data point of every single con contribution of every single duplicate, right? You know? Yeah. So, you know, at this point we process 60,000 comps a month, give or take, you know, which include, you know, 15 to 30 data points each. So we're dealing mm -hmm. with millions and millions of data points that are all coming in in lots of different formats. And, and, and then you're, so, yeah. you're having to like check in, make sure that that, that sounds like yeah. a very interesting process, which we, you know, we can get into later. To, I want to sort of get back to the core focus of the show, which is this sort of, I did a bit of research. It sounds like you, you have been doing this for a while. Is that right? Is two, 2008, is that, is that correct? We launched in 2012, beginning of 2012. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so can can you sort of tell me like what was the transition, like what you were doing, and when you, you sort of how you transitioned into this and kind of came up with the idea? Well, I was a commercial real estate broker. Okay, so, perfect. Yeah, I was doing I was doing office leasing uh, transactions and data center transactions in Manhattan. Yeah, well, I was based in Manhattan. Most of my transactions were in Manhattan, but I represented you know tenants in lots of different locations as well. Okay. Yeah. And the idea came out of that experience and that I was sharing data with other commercial real estate brokers all the time over the phone and via email and in, in our weekly market meetings and realized that the way that we were sharing data was really inefficient, right? We mm -hmm. were just sharing random, random comps for other random comps. And as a result, you know, didn't actually have the data that was most useful when we were actually doing transactions, right? Because you know, for instance, I represented tech companies and creative mm -hmm. firms, but, you know, the deals that all the people in the industry were often talking about, you know, in Manhattan commercial real estate was, you know, or bank deals and hedge fund deals and law firm deals. And most of those weren't relevant to me. And so the idea was, well, we're all sharing this information anyway. Can we create a way where people can share random information, but then be able to get out very specific information that's most valuable and useful to what they're doing when they need it? Right. So I can mm -hmm. trade someone can trade a hedge fund deal, but when they're working on a tech deal, go find the right tech deal. Or if they're working on a deal in a particular building, find the most recent deal in that building or the most recent deal with that landlord or the most recent deal done by that tenant. Right. So trading random information to get granular, useful data in return. OK, so I'm trying to imagine like you're sort of let's say you've got a big commercial, you know, tower in, in downtown Manhattan or something. So you these comps are actually like they're you, different rooms or different office spaces in that building. So you're sort of filling in the, the missing pieces on that office building just as the comps come in. Is that is that correct? So so each owner or each uh, broker or each appraiser would give you this data and so if there's a tower in new york you may not have all the information on that but it just sort of it grows as people come in and find out about the platform exactly yeah and, okay. and you know bearing in mind right that in any given building there may not be any deals for several months or for a year right or mm -hmm. for two years. okay and then, and then there may could be several deals and so we'll just take yeah. whatever we get when we can get it as the transactions take place 
And you know that's why having granular information is so valuable because it's not that liquid of a market, right? You know, right. if I'm doing a deal in a particular building and there hasn't been a recent deal in that building, well, I want to know when the la what the last deal was that did did take place there. It makes uh -huh. it that much more valuable. But I also want to know, you know, the deals in the buildings nearby and the comparable buildings and wh where have they been renting at, so I can understand. Right. What, okay, that makes sense. You know, what, so you my, can... what I should pay. So your use, so your user comes in and they're saying taking like markets so they can compare like other buildings in in downtown Manhattan and not comparing, say, with information that's that's not applicable if it's Miami or something like that. Right. Um, so they're they're taking that. So I imagine that data is quite valuable for these uh, investors. Yeah, I mean it's it's incredibly valuable, and not only is it valuable from the standpoint of leasing space, but in commercial real estate. For you know, kind of institutional assets, for investment grade assets, the mm -hmm. way you determine the value of a commercial real estate asset is based off of the income that it produces. Right. And so the underlying rents are what determine the value of the property. And more importantly, if you're looking to buy an, a property or sell a property, the value of that property is determined not only based off of the income that it currently produces, but based off of your projections of what kind of income it will produce. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when two people are trying to buy a building, you know, the, the, the person or the company that's going to pay the most money for it is the is the company that has built out the financial model that predicts the highest rents that they, you know, in that building that they can achieve. And so mm -hmm. they use our data to understand what are the rents, you know, in that property and in the competitive properties to be able to figure out what what kind of rents they can achieve when they buy that building and to underwrite that investment. Yeah. Okay. And so it's actually, you know, it becomes incredibly valuable in that regard. And of course, we also track track the sales transactions as well. But the lease transactions are actually even more valuable in understanding the value of a property than the sales themselves. So it's got a CRM component to it then. is It's not, you wouldn't say it's a CRM though, would you? No, I wouldn't say it's a CRM though. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly... But it's day to day valuable, you know. Right, day -day. right. It has elements so we can track all that and track, track you know, specific property events and things like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely would like to get into pricing, but before we drift away from the, uh, you're, you're now a broker and you're sort of, you just stumbled onto this idea. At that time, did you know it was going to be hugely valuable or what was what were you thinking at the time? I mean, I think we, we thought it would be valuable. I don't, I, you know, I think we figured, okay, we'll build, you know, a, a product around this sort of niche area around lease comps. And, yeah. and and carve out a niche and that would be it, you know. Right. And since that time, you know, the vision has grown quite a bit and our aspirations for what we're trying to do have become much, much larger because I think we le le realize that leveraging crowdsourcing to gather information is quite valuable beyond just the lease comp data and mm -hmm. that this methodology can allow you to gather information of all kinds and that we can scale this, you know, in a, in a big, big way. Okay. So... When you when you first came up with this idea, the, who was your employer at the time? Did you leave and start this, or did you start it as a side hustle, or what was what was yeah, the approach? Yeah, I mean, originally it was somewhat of a side hustle. You know, okay. I, I kind of talked to my boss, and I was a broker, right? So, yeah, you know, the, the 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 attitude was. You know, if you're still doing deals and you're still moving things forward, you can do whatever you want at night. Yeah, you know? yeah, okay. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's very much an eat what you kill business. And but you know, I yeah. spoke to them about it, and they they were they were cool with it. So originally that was the case. And you know, my co-founder, who I'm happy to talk about how we how we got together, but he was working on Comstack full time actually before I was. 
Okay, so that's interesting. Did it exist at this time, and you found him because you were searching around? But uh, or how did how how did that how did you guys meet? Well, nothing existed. No, I mean it was basically just an idea, and mm-hmm. on my end. This was back in 2011, and mm-hmm. on my end, I was just going to tech startup events, you know, every night of the week in New York, you know, mm-hmm. just with the intention of trying to find a co-founder okay. um, to to get this company off the off the ground and and somebody technical who I could partner with to, to launch it, mm-hmm. and so I just was going to these events every night, pitching people on the idea, trying mm-hmm. to network my way into, you know, somebody who could be a technical co-founder. Yeah, and, and how. Yeah. How was that process? Because I know people pitch me all the time, like, oh, I've got this idea. Can you be my technical co-founder? By the way, I can't pay you. Was that sort of the pitch? or? Well, was, was that the pitch? <laughs> sort of, right? I mean, I, I, the, the interesting thing is actually several several years before I tried to start like a Facebook app and it was a disaster but you know uh-huh. it, it, you know back when Facebook apps were a big were, were a big thing and I, I found some random guy online who I paid a little bit of money to build it and it was a disaster and yeah. and the big learning from that was you know if I'm gonna build a company and it's gonna be a tech company then I need a technical co-founder who is truly my partner you know uh-huh. and and so you know the pitch wasn't you know Hey, do you want to start this with me? I don't have any money to pay you. The pitch was, we are going to be partners. We're going to be co-founders. Yeah. We're going to have yeah, yeah. skin in the game. And my my co-founder and I are equal partners. And 50-50 you know, right from the start. We are, we're 50-50. I don't know that I necessarily okay. thought we'd be 50-50, but we were. But yeah. either way, it was going to be that my co-founder was going to have a lot of equity and was going to be yeah, fully yeah. with me. You okay. know? And so... And that was, of course, tricky when you don't even know somebody and you got to get to know them. And to, yeah, to, I would like to get into that part, too. Yeah. Going back, would you have done that the same way? Because a lot of people talk about vesting, you know, earnings, all that kind of thing. Oh, well, you... we both we both vested into it. Okay, good. Yeah. So the way we structured it was that we were 50-50 partners, but we would both vest into our equity over four years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so at one time, was it like sort of heavily stacked on his side when you were first getting going because he was doing all the development, or how did you sort of distribute the equity during? No, that? I mean we both started vesting at the same time. When Rich, Rich initially there was no kind of agreement at all. It was just like, hey, let's just work on this thing together, mm-hmm. and if we decide we're not gonna, you know, it's not working out, we'll just go our separate ways. We can, if we both want to do something, either one of us want to do something with us, we will. But no, sort of like you know, formal agreement right now, you know, yeah, yeah. and then later on, you know, when we started, we put an actual agreement in place, we just started vesting at the same time. Okay. Um, and I think we and gave it, ourselves credit for the time we'd worked on it before, because he was working on it full time. I was effectively working on it full time too, but I also was still working as a broker. As right? a broker, I was okay. putting in a lot of hours. So how did you fund that MVP then originally? Because did he, did he, he was he doing some side programming as a, as a freelance developer or anything like that? Or was he? Maybe a bit at the beginning, but, for, but, but pretty much he was working on it full time for, you know, for a while and he was working without a salary, you know, and I was still, you know, making some money off of brokerage, but you know, there weren't really any meaningful costs at the onset, right? Like he was building it and, you know, coding it. Was he living in Manhattan though? Because that living cost in Manhattan is a real cost. Well, he was living in Brooklyn, but, you know, luckily okay. he'd done very well. You know, he was, he, before Comstack, he was, he had a consulting firm and he was building technology for hedge funds and for banks and he had done well and had some money saved up. And so effectively okay. he, 
he he burned through savings effectively. Okay, I see. So <laughs> he he was he was uh, sort of wealthy at that time. At that time, not wealthy, but he had some runway. So, and how long did it take to get your MVP going? I guess you know started working on it in the spring of 2011, just like just a prototype, I guess at that point. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was just it was almost exactly ten years ago, you know, and you know that was really just a concept. And I guess started like collecting data. At that you know at that point that probably took six months or so, and then mm-hmm. kind of the end of 2011, we had you know, something that was, you know, we could show to people and, and we had, we were collecting some data. And then I think we kind of officially kind of launched the very beginning of 2012 in with like, you know, effectively a, an alpha or beta, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. And your first customers, like how, how was your boss, your, one of your first customers at that point or? No, actually. I mean, it was actually a weird circumstance in that the, the brokerage firm that I was with was actually in the process of going bankrupt. Um, oh really? Okay. And and so that was part of the thing was like you know everything was sort of in flux anyway, so it allowed yeah. me to focus my efforts a bit. And and the company ended up getting sold, you know, in the bankruptcy. And then when that happened, I left and I went on the Cubstack full time. And that it was, was good in timing the, then. The spring of 2012. But no, I mean it took a little while. I mean the you know our focus at first was really just around getting the exchange going and getting people sharing data. And building yeah. that out, and 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 showing that there was that there was value on the broker side of the okay, business. Okay, that makes money. sense because you no customers are coming unless you're getting this data. So that's probably the hardest part, right? Was getting because yeah. the brokers have to come, and there's no customers at the front end, but they're giving you this data. What was the sort of the idea of what was the idea for what was the value for that they were getting back? If there's no customers in the beginning, I imagine right. Well, that was kind of a hard. That was them getting other data back out in return, right? But of course, there's a real chicken or the egg issue, right? You know, because you give data, if there's nothing to get out, there's nothing to get out. Why do I I don't see any value? Why should I give you data? And so, what in the early days it was me, like you know, I distinctly remember sitting in my, you know, you know, sitting on my couch in my living room in my apartment. Call, going through a list of every broker in New York City, many of whom I knew, mm-hmm. and just calling them up and, and saying, hey, I'm starting this thing, can you send me comps? Next call, hey, I'm starting the thing, can you send me comps? You know, and then I'd go through that list every week, and so I'd say, hey, can you send me data, can you send me data, can you send me data? Then we'd load up the data, I'd say, hey, did you check out your data on the platform? Did you see other people's data? Did you try it, did you try it? Did you log yeah. in? Hey, you didn't log in, go log in. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God, you know good I mean? for you, yeah. Well, look, I was That's a broker, yeah. <laughs> I was a broker, cold calling was in my blood, you know what I mean? Yeah, That's yeah. I was used to doing, so I just spent all day, every day, cold calling brokers, getting them to give uh, me data, hardcore. getting them to yeah. log in. At and least you I, knew him, though. Was it was that so that wasn't intimidating at all for you, though? That was just sort of because that was in your blood as a sales guy. That's just sort of what you got to do, right? I mean, that yeah. was, my mentality was like, if you're in sales, this is what you do. You get people yeah. on the phone and you talk to them and you you, you know whatever. So yeah. I just you know, and I I had enough relationships and that I was able to get people to share some data, you know, preemptively before there was value to get out. But then of course right. I wanted to prove the concept and make sure they were getting value and getting data out. And, and how long did that take? I mean, because if you're calling a guy every week and he's giving you, presumably it's not that big of an ask though, right? He just sends you something. 
maybe he didn't even have anything because as you say it's it, it's these these events may not be happening that often but if he sends you something it takes five minutes is that is that sort of the the idea when you were doing this at yeah, that pretty time easy to send the data to us yeah, yeah. just email it to me you know what i mean i'll we'll yeah, get it yeah. i was the one manually loading the data into the system so that that wasn't too big of a lift for them to give the data, but it was just. But you know, people are busy and they've got other stuff going yeah. on, and yeah. and so it's just I had to bug them, and and then ultimately make sure they were finding value, and then the flywheel. You know, it's kind of like we call it the kind of manually kind of spinning up the flywheel, right? Yeah, and the flywheel yeah. sort of spins itself because people find value, they want mm. to get that data out, so they have to give more data. That, you know, so they earn credits and they get data out, and it just keeps being, a, you know, and that creates more value for other people who see more value, who contribute data, and it sort of works, you know, by itself. Okay, um, so the the cre earning credits concept was in even at the prototypes yeah, level. Yeah. Okay, can can you go in a little bit deeper there? Like, what's an example of credit? What like what would I get if I send you um, some data sets? Is it like more access to other data sets, or because do they pay? Do they pay? They at don't all? pay. Or, no, no. So it's they don't pay. So, like, what's the credit then? Why, why would I want a credit, and what do I get for that credit? Well, so you want the credits because you need the credits to get data back to get data out of Comstack. Okay. So basically, it ends up being if you think of a comp as a, a comp as a record of a transaction that has taken place, mm -hmm. it ends up being roughly one for one. For every comp you give us, you earn enough credits to get one comp back out. Okay. So I want to, you know, I want to earn credits because I want to get comps out. So maybe I represented Google, and so I submit the Google comp, and I mm -hmm. earn credits for that. And now I can search through and I can find the Facebook comp that I'm looking for, right? Mm -hmm. That I can use my credits to get to get out. Okay, so but why did these brokers want this data? What? So they're because I thought it was the investors that want that data. What? Well, why no, the, do the brokers, brokers want the brokers this? want the data. I mean, I think to your point earlier, you said I would think the brokers want this data the most. They do. <laughs> it's just they okay. just aren't looking for it. No, I mean because okay. if I'm if I am you know if I'm a broker and I'm representing a tenant, right? I want to know, and I'm trying to do a deal in a particular building. I want to know the recent deals. Oh, in that so you get, they're going to give accurate data, so they can say, okay, here's a guy across the street. He's charging this. So that's they're sort of coming with the with the street info. Yeah, it's it's a, you know that is tangible value that I can that I can leverage to do a deal, you know, to, to negotiate okay. the best deal for my client. I can also use it for prospecting because I can see who has leases that are expiring, who might need a broker. I can use okay. it to have intelligence on what's going on in the building so I sound smarter when I'm pitching a client. Okay. There's a lot of that use makes cases sense. Yeah. It, but okay, like that totally makes sense. Broker I just is was like the lifeblood of the profession. Yeah, that makes sense. But it, it's interesting how you don't charge them and you charge on the front end to the investors, which 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 I understand. But it's good. It's interesting to see how you make the two sides work together without charging the, the brokers, without charging the brokers and having the investors as your clients. How long like until you got your first investors and, and how did that come up? How did that come about finding your you start? You got the broker. So you're, you're cold calling your crowdsourcing. That's your crowdsourcing to get the investors to come onto the platform. And then at what point did you feel like, OK, I can start going out to get my my first paying users? Was it like um, pretty f quickly? Like, you know, as soon as you start to fill in the pieces around Manhattan, you could kind of. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, I think we got our first paying client in October 2012 and we had launched, give or take, January 2012. Okay. Okay. So, and and what, was, what was the, how did you come up with your pricing? That's a good question. I, I don't recall all the details at this anymore at this point, but generally tried to look at what other people, what other platforms were charging. 
you know, other data. Presumably there was nothing out there like this. It sounds like a very niche product. Not explicitly like this. No, I mean, you know, but we, but we looked at what other real estate data platforms charge other data platforms generally, you know, Mm -hmm. on a per seat basis or per company basis from what we could kind of garner. And then just kind of like, you know, to some extent made up a price and came in from what probably most people would say came in pretty high. I would get, I would say to start Mm -hmm. because we thought it was very valuable, very, you know, useful data and, and wanted to charge, charge it as a premium product. And, um, and, you know, but, you know, created somewhat, I guess, of an entry price that was a minimum price. And then you could add more users, right. And, and add, you know, and and pay more over time. Um, Okay. And so, so sorry, uh, how is that? What was the first, what was the first pricing? I mean, do you do it? Our very first deal, I mean, I think was, it was $30,000 for New York city access for two users for, for a year. Okay, so it's big time. Like you come, so it was kind of a a big deal to make that. Was that an easy sale? Do you remember? Surprisingly, yes. And actually, this was like a a really big um, challenge for us. um, In that, so we didn't even really have this the enterprise product. We had like the exchange product. Yeah. The enterprise product we were pitching didn't really exist. We basically once we made the sale, we had to sort of tweak the exchange product to make it work for enterprise, which is where we sell access. So exchange where people trade data, enterprise where people pay for access to the data. So we had to sort of just like tweak the existing product and we hardly even really had it at the time. But what ended up happening was like, I kind of had warm intros to two of New York City's largest landlords. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Tishman Spire and Vornado. Okay. Huge, huge landlords, you know, some of the two of the largest landlords in the world, let alone New York. Okay. pitched them both and they both closed. They both signed contracts. So it's separate, separate sales meetings though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but, you know, it was, it was crazy. We were like, holy shit. Like this is, you know, it's like people are willing to pay for this and a lot of money. Yeah. Like this is really valuable. Wow. We've got quite the company here. (laughs) um, As it turns out, it, you know, moving forward, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that easy to sell. It was yeah. like, you know, somewhat of a false positive. Okay. You know, we were, we were, you know, two for two and we're like, okay, this is going to be easy. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't easy, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think maybe we got ahead of ourselves there, just assumed it was. Okay, so you got 60,000. This shows about zero to 30,000. Sound like you basically did that very fast and it was kind of, you know. Well, that was on an a- ARR basis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. Okay. So, so you're at 6,000 monthly. <laughs> so tell me about the rest then. So you, you're up at, you know, you're up at six to 10,000. Is that covering, you know, now you're just able to start covering dev costs. Could, had you left your, had your business closed down at this point? Well, the, other, I, I, the, the commercial uh, brokerage position. Oh, yeah. So at that point, yeah, I think, you know, I left brokerage when, when the company went bankrupt and that was probably, April, I think, of 2012, and we closed our first deal in October 2012. Okay. So, and we raised our first money, we raised VC money in, our first money in June 2012. Okay, you did, okay. So, and uh, and how was that, how was raising the, the funds and how did you structure that? Well, I mean, you know, we had tried to tried to start raising a year before that in, in 2011, and at the time, you know, the, I got a lot of feedback of, well, one, you know, feedback of, commercial real estate, is this a big enough market? Like, you know, what's mm-hmm. the opportunity here? Nobody, there was no, now prop tech is huge, but at the time, 
there was no such thing as prop tech or commercial real estate tech, and no one had any interest whatsoever in real estate technology. So got a lot of pushback on the, the size of the addressable market. And also got a lot of pushback in that I was still working as a broker. You know, uh, there were a lot of people saying, well, you know, if you were really committed to this, you would quit your job. And my feedback uh, see, was... Yeah. The VCs know, were saying that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and my feedback was, well, if you'd give me money, I'll quit my job. You know, I yeah, can't afford yeah. to not have my job. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's right, yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, it's a very sort of like privileged, you know, kind of uh, attitude. But it's it's pretty typical that that's, that's a pretty typical, you know, refrain, I think. Yeah. You know, that I was showing a lack of commitment because I still had my job. But it's like, no, it's just necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately... So it took almost a, you know, a year of trying to figure out how to play the game, <laughs> plus also having you know, gotten actual traction on the platform mm-hmm. and, and you know, kind of bootstrapping it up into that point where between the traction and learning how to play the fundraising game, we finally were able to raise some money. And initially it was you know, angel investors. Uh-huh. And, and then we got in kind of some, some micro VCs like seed investors and, and mm-hmm. then grew from there. And then we did... did- yeah, sorry, Did you ahead. find, I mean, does it sound to me like you were obviously in a much stronger position once you had bootstrapped, once you had bootstrapped, uh, is, I mean, was it, was it e- much easier for you to get, you know, once you've made those two big sales, was it a lot easier to get interest from the VCs? Yeah, actually the sale, we had raised money before we got those sales. So we raised our first money in June. Okay. We raised some, we, we had raised about half a million dollars at the time we closed those sales. Um, and, but then once we had those sales, that certainly helped as well. We, it was also around that time that we had joined the, um, 500 startups accelerator. Okay. Um, So we, so that, and all around that time, yeah, we started to get some sales. We started to, we were, we were expanding from New York to San Francisco and growing our market coverage Mm -hmm. and, you know, building connections in Silicon Valley and kind of getting, getting teed up to do a series A. And how was the how was the accelerator experience? It was great. It was great. I it mean, was it was good, really yeah. good to get tapped in. Did they give you some money as well? They did, yeah. Okay. So how was your how was your equity structure through this cuz I mean that sounds like a you know that sounds like a, pr- a challenging, you know, sort of way to pr- do all this equity. You got some angels, you got the accelerator. How did you structure all of that? Well, we did a convertible note. Oh, okay. So it was okay. So it was just convertible note. Yeah. 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 I mean, today, if we were doing it today, it'd probably be a safe, you know, that seems to be what people do today. It's a a simple agreement for future equity, which is sort of like a convertible note, a little little simpler. Uh, Yeah, yeah. We did a convertible note um, at that point, and everybody came in on the same, you know, cap on that note. Okay. And any advice for people listening that are thinking about going down this road? I mean, like, where did you find your counsel or... Uh, any guidelines uh, on getting advice and navigating this? Because I'm sure it can be quite intimidating. I think, if I recall correctly, like our council was, I think I, it was like some sort of po- blog post or Reddit post or something like that I saw online, uh-huh. um, re- you know, that, that recommended our, our lawyer who was with w- WSGR, Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich, Goodrich and Rosati. They're one of the largest tech law firms in, what, in, in the world. They, mm-hmm. you know, they represent Google and, you know, major okay, so you firms. went right to the top. We went, went right, right to, to the top. top yeah. To, you know, you know, it was like them and Cooley or, or like, you know, and uh, maybe Goodwin were like, you know, but I said probably them and Cooley were the biggest, you know, tech yeah. firms, you know, representing startups and other big tech companies. And 
you know, got and, and so saw this guy's name, called him up and, and met with him. And, you know, we went with a big firm from the get go, which I think kind of gives you credibility when you're going to raise money that you've got, you know, a serious big firm that you're yeah. working with. But that's out of pocket, right? Because that's not in your funding. That, that stuff would be is, is sort of a, a founder's. Well, interestingly, actually, so those really big firms that, you know, if they believe in what you're doing, if you come in from a good referral or they just or they believe or that you're, you know, you've, that you've got some credibility, they'll actually defer their fees. Oh, really? Um, okay. In our case, we didn't have a ton of credibility. So they deferred our fees, but they took a very small percentage of equity in the company in exchange That's interesting, for that. Yeah. And they deferred our fees for a year. Okay. So they actually paid for all the initial incorporation documents and partnership agreements and, and everything we needed to get, go, get off the ground. And, and looking back, you think that you're, you're happy with doing it that way? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, working with the biggest, most expensive firms is not always the best idea, mm-hmm. but there is value in it from the standpoint that they do this all day long, right? They are like a factory for building out, you know, for, 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 for putting together these kind of documents for early stage startups that are, that are looking to be VC backed. They know exactly mm-hmm. what is needed and how to do it. And so you pay, it ends up being the hourly fees are very high, but they do very, but it ends up being very few hours because they do this all day long. Right? Yeah, that's right. And they've got and, templates and they, they can do it very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Plus they'll sort of say, this is the fixed amount and we'll defer this amount. Right. So, yeah. you know, you don't want to be penny wise, pound foolish. And I think in this case, because they just knew what they were doing and were totally on top of it, we did the work once instead of doing it wrong and having to do it again later. Right. Yeah. And we had the credibility from day one. So yeah, I feel really, I feel, and we learned a lot on how to structure it and how to do things the right way from our lawyer and setting that up. And mm-hmm. so... Yeah, I, I don't. I don't regret that. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Okay, so and then, uh, so you're at six thousand. Uh, tell me about this time period where you, where you said that afterwards you found out that it wasn't so easy to make other sales. How did you navigate through that? Well, you know, I think that the the reality is that when you're building a data company, mm-hmm. um, it's not the same as building a typical SaaS company. You know, there the data is the product, and you need to have a lot of data, and it's got to be high quality data, and it's got to have a lot of data coverage and density and what have you to to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that I should have we should have spent more time focused on just building the data, and waited to sell, you know, okay. because I think what happened was okay, great, we sold these two big office landlords, and at the time we had great office data for New York City. Yeah. But, you know, we couldn't sell people who were interested in other asset classes. We couldn't sell people in other markets. There were only so many people that were office landlords in New York that were willing to talk to us and even meet with us. And, and you know, I think we ended up then hiring our first salesperson too early because mm-hmm. we thought that it would be easy to sell. And, and I think, you know, if I had to do it over again, I just would have waited as long as possible to sell, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have actually, maybe I would have still done those first two deals, one or two deals just to prove that there's more product market right. fit and that people yeah. find value in this data. That and then I would sense. have stopped, right? You would have stopped and then built out the data, data as a service. That's really what you are. You're not a SAS, you're a DAS, eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So I would have waited as long as possible from that point to build out the data so that when we did go back and start selling more aggressively, we knew that we could do it repeatedly and consistently. Okay. And so building out the data, it sounds like that salesperson could have really helped you do that because it sounds like building out the data is really going, you know, calling these brokers and getting the data and trying to encourage them to use a 
Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we we also, in addition to this, the salesperson, we hired people to focus on, you know, getting more brokers and appraisers on Comstack, getting more people to share data and building out that side of the business as well. Uh-huh. So I think we did that well. I just would have, you know, put that extra headcount on that, you know. And yeah. That, that time. So how long did it take to get traction then? What was was there anything that was there? What was there, it? Sounds like you know this shows about the big break. What would you say was it? The big break was when you found traction, gathering the, the data, and all of a sudden the investors started to show up. Or what was the sort of event that happened? Well, you know, maybe maybe unfortunately contrary to the to the show, I, I don't know that there's one big break. I think there's multiple, you know, multiple break, multiple breaks and multiple mm-hmm. failures and challenges along yeah, the way. Absolutely. You know, you know not necessarily mm-hmm. one in particular. I think closing those first couple of deals was absolutely a big break, right? Yeah. Getting our yeah. first, you know, fundraise, you know, first money in the door was a big break. Getting into 500 startups was a big break. Then okay. simultaneously closing our Series A right after 500 startups was a was a big mm-hmm. break. But you know, and then. As far as like what the next big break was from a sales perspective, I'm not sure, honestly. It just seemed from that point forward, from a sales perspective, it was just sort of like churning along, trying to hit new milestones all the time. But Uh, I can't think of any point in time in particular where we're like, oh, now we've made it, you know, from a sales perspective. You never felt like that. There was never a time like, like, okay, now, you know, like I'm going to... Like someone, someone explained to me like when when they when they had their when the, turning off the notifications of a new sale that that was like a big thing for them. They remembered. <laughs> I was getting so many of these things. I just turned it off. That was like an event for them. That was like a milestone. Do you have any of those moments like that? I think there's been certainly little ones along the way. You know where we yeah. were like, okay, now we're gonna you know we're like you know we're gonna hit break even this month, and then you know we're gonna do this or this or yeah. But, but like the you know the the reality is that you keep setting bigger and bigger expectations on yourself and on the company mm-hmm. over time, and you raise more money, which sets a higher bar for what is expected from your investors, you know. And so those great things that happen that maybe would have seemed amazing based off of your previous goals don't be seem quite as amazing as you keep setting higher and higher and bigger goals. Yeah. Not yeah, to be yeah. too much of a downer, but like, you know, that that realistically, you know, there's just there's there's more pressure that comes along the way and more expectations along the way, which means that those accomplishments, you know, maybe, you know, they have to be that much bigger in order to to feel like you've made it. Yeah, that 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 make that makes sense. Looking back, are are is there are you glad you took the route you did with taking investment money, or do you do you ever think that maybe you know bootstrapping might have you know changed your outlook on how you ran the company, or are you totally happy with how you did everything? I don't regret taking money. I mean, I think I would probably have taken more money, and you know, if I could, I I think that bootstrapping is great for a lot of people, and certain businesses are more easily bootstrapped than others. By nature of the fact that we're building a data company and it takes a long time to build a great, amazing data set, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to do that from a bootstrap standpoint. You know, it, it either takes a lot of money or a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a very patient person. Okay, so fair enough. the reason why I say I would have raised more money is because I, I want to I make everything go faster and expedite yeah. the process. And yeah. raising less money just means everything taking longer. And yeah. um, and so I think it just, it's just it's based off your personality. But for me, I want to build something big and I want to build it as quickly as possible. Okay, that makes sense. How about we're getting close to the end of end of our uh, agreed upon time. I just want to make sure I respect your time on this. But uh, plans for the future, like I mean, is like you keep 
you mentioned you keep raising your goals. What's your like? What's your latest goal right now? The the big picture goal is that we want to be the leader in commercial real estate data. We want to okay. You know, we want to be viewed as the, the as so that's getting data. out of the comps in. It's getting out of comps and it's well, getting you know, into... we're still going to do that, but to take on more data sets and more product, okay. you know, as we do that, you know, we've we've really doubled down on our analytics that sit on top of the data. So okay. um, we have some great tools there. We built out a chart builder and then a map analytics product and a portfolio analytics product, and we're continuing to build more and more tools on top of that. We're, you know, we're about to announce a, a big new data set that we're adding to the platform and we're going to continue okay. to add more data sets and more products. Who is so your competitors? No, you say you want to be the leader. Who's who's the leader right now? Who who would you consider is is your competition? Is well, that Cosign one is Cosign one of them? Uh, oh, it's CoStar, I think, is the company. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, sorry, they, CoStar. I mean, they yeah. are. They're not. They haven't been so much of a direct competitor, right? Because we went after a data set that they weren't very strong in, that we were very very strong in, particularly with the lease comps. Although yeah. over time they become more of a direct competitor, but they're mm -hmm. absolutely you know the industry leader. You know they they. Okay. Uh, Thirty-five billion dollar market cap company, you yeah. Know? So they're they're the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the industry. Okay, all right, that's great, Michael. So thank you so much for your time. I, I find I find this this real niche products. I find it really fascinating because I I don't know that much about it. So sure. it's very interesting to drill down on how you kind of came up with it and you know spun it into what sounds like a very lucrative business. So congratulations on all your hard work and success and anything that you'd like to leave our listeners off with before we let you go? I would just say, uh, you know, keep grinding away for everybody who's early stage in the process. You know, sometimes there'll be a, a big break, but sometimes you just need to... It's little breaks. That's right. Know, little breaks and a lot of grit and just keep going, yeah. keep going and it's keep hustle, going yeah. and, you'll, and you'll get there. Yeah. Very good. Thanks so much for your time, Michael. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <music>